Welcome to Momentum HSS, a podcast where we explore the diverse present and future trends of the humanities and social sciences. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty, and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you. As you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter, at Darby underscore librarian, or more privately via email at dcorcut at ncsu.edu. As always, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. I'm pleased to have as my guest this episode, Catherine Cappy Bond-Hill. As managing director, she leads Ithaca SNR's research and consulting initiatives to broaden access to higher education, reduce cost, and improve student outcomes. A noted economist whose work focuses on higher education affordability and access, as well as on economic development and reform in Africa, she previously served from 2006 to 2016 as the 10th president of Vassar College, and prior to that was the provost of Williams College. She originally joined the economics faculty at Williams in 1985. From 1994 to 1997, Cappy lived in the Republic of Zambia, working in the Ministry of Finance and with the Bank of Zambia. Welcome, Cappy, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks. Happy to be here. For many years, uh, you've been enmeshed in helping to develop strategies, responses, and resiliency across higher education to one of its biggest trends. It's changing economics. Economics that are both changing for us due to shifting demographics, but also because of a strong commitment on the part of so many to try to make pathways of higher education more affordable and accessible. And I am always surprised that so many, even working within higher education, are not necessarily fully aware of these issues. So I first want to ask you if you would share your best elevator speech concerning the broad economic challenges facing higher education today. Oh, I'm, I'm not good at elevator speeches unless it's a very, very tall building, but I'll do the best that I possibly can. Thank you. Um, so I think American higher education is really interesting because there are about 4,500 institutions out there. We do not have a national system of higher education. That, that gives us many benefits and that there are a whole diverse set of ways in which people can access post-secondary education. And they're all supported in very different ways. Some are supported by the state. Some are supported by local communities. Some are basically tuition-driven, um, mostly public and private nonprofit, but increasingly a profit sector. I think the, the most challenging thing at the moment is that a combination of two things. One is rising income inequality in America uh, that's been driven by a variety of things from globalization to, to technology to macroeconomic policies. Those 4,500 institutions are operating within a society that has become significantly less equal over time. And then the second issue that's incredibly important is that those that technological development, I think, has led to a post-secondary degree being 
significantly more important than it's ever been before. So I think those are the things that are challenging us right at the moment, and we really haven't come up with a solution to those things. And you mentioned that all the different types of institutions and those institutions can and perhaps should respond to these challenges in different ways. Do you foresee heading into the future a larger differentiation in the missions, goals, and or student populations of these different types of institutions? Well, what I'd like to see is as a country, I'd like us to have higher educational attainment. And that means getting it up across the system. There's some schools that are doing incredibly well with 90 to 95% of the students graduating in four or five or so years. Uh, but there are others where the graduation rates are not very good. And figuring out how to get those up, I think, is incredibly important. That's how we're going to get educational attainment up. And again, it's incredibly important to individuals in uh, our society to, to move on to post-secondary education in a way that it wasn't 40 years ago. So differentiation, yes and no. Um, I think more importantly is, is to figure out how to uh, have schools be more successful at what they're doing, which is getting students through a degree. For research-intensive universities, much of the perceived focus for many years has been upon the research enterprise. Uh, which is, of course, in an era an era of tighter finances, somewhat at odds with growing emphases on affordability and student success. How do you see these often competing concerns being balanced? Yeah, I mean that's so interesting because um, our institutions of higher education basically do a couple of different things. I mean, they do many things, but you know, they're research enterprises, and then they're teaching enterprises. And I think as a country, we need to think of both of those things as incredibly important and not put institutions in the position of having to trade those things off. Uh, if you think about what's going on right now with, with COVID, our, our research institutions have stepped up to the plate and are trying to help us solve that problem and have been incredibly important players there. Ultimately, that research function in the long run depends on having an educated population. And so you don't want to have those trade off too much. I think as a country, we need to support both. What are ideas for how higher education can be more coordinated with itself that really uh, look at itself as a system rather than individual institutions within a system? Because it sounds like that's very important to your vision of the future. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's complicated because the way we've set it up uh, is really with a lot of institutional autonomy. And institutions do compete with each other. They compete with each other for students and for faculty. Uh, and sometimes those incentives to compete create spending on things that I wish we wouldn't spend on. But, but the institutions are being rational in how they're behaving within the system as it exists. I do think that probably what has to happen is that state and federal uh, governments, which do subsidize both the public and private nonprofit sector, as well as the for-profit sector, need to figure out a way to ask institutions to serve the public good, which is why they're, why they're subsidized. Uh, and that means figuring out a way to be affordable for families, but also figuring out a way to make sure that when students and family invest in higher education, that they actually benefit and get through and get a degree. What particular impacts from 
these changing economic factors, do you anticipate it having the greatest influence on the future of the humanities and social sciences in particular? Uh, I, I worry that people being so focused now on the importance of, of higher education, which is, I think, really, really uh, important, sometimes focus on the wrong things, which is a field of study and earnings after graduation. And in some cases are making the case that the humanities and the social sciences aren't as important as the hard sciences. I personally think uh, a, a very liberal education at the BA level is an incredibly important investment on the part of individuals and our society uh, going forward. So I, I, I think the focus on the earnings that comes from getting a BA these days, which is part of what's driven the increase in income inequality in our society, is leading people to the wrong conclusion about what's important about education. And it's not prepping for a job. It's, it's learning a set of um, skills and behaviors and knowledge that create more creative and nimble thinkers who can respond to an incredibly uncertain world as they go forward in their lives and careers. And that's one of those challenges, too, isn't it, is trying to provide that at scale for society. Because traditionally, the liberal arts wasn't, was something that was pursued by a smaller segment of the population, correct? Yeah. Well, higher education was was uh, pursued by a very small share of the population. That changed significantly um, during the 20th century. And uh, it's become, I think, increasingly important. You know, 40 years ago, you could graduate from high school and get a pretty good job in the manufacturing sector and earn a middle income wage or salary, buy a home, educate your kids. That's, that's kind of not possible now. If you don't graduate, if you don't go on from high school and get a post-secondary degree, it, it's incredibly difficult to afford the things that we think of as being just part of a traditional middle-income life. I want to take that idea and look, challenge you to look further down the road because there are certainly in today's world lots of folks who are starting to talk about perhaps separating the ideas of work and income even. Um, talking about we may be moving towards a time in the future where we need to think about basic income for citizens, where we may, may need to um, think in very different ways about our economic structure with coming technologies. What do you think about those things? Uh, yeah, those are really interesting issues. Uh, when I've thought about them a little bit, I've thought about societies that have massive wealth from natural resources and how they've responded to using those resources. In some cases, societies have used those well, and in other cases, they haven't. But if you think about the uh, technology leading to massive accumulation of wealth on the part of a few, how does a society decide to intervene in, in that allocation of resources to have the society be a healthy and thriving one. 
So I, I think of the issues as, as slightly similar. And so I, I agree with you. I think down the road, if that's the direction that things go, policymakers, public policymakers are going to think about how you have a slightly differently organized society to make it um, one that maximizes the welfare of your population. So if you think about the if you think about the workforce developing in a way where they're just some jobs that the market doesn't reward enough to to make for a living wage, then you know that's presumably a society that you think is not going to be very healthy, and you have to think of some ways to counter that. Um, we're doing it on the margin right now with things like minimum wages and a certain social safety net. But if the economy evolves in a way that makes things significantly less equal, then we may need to intervene in, in greater ways. What element of higher education that seems perennially threatened in tough fiscal times is that of support services, be it library budgets, support staff, or sometimes even office supplies. In other words, anything that doesn't directly produce student credit hours can possibly be on the chopping block. Yet with all the things that higher education is being called upon to do more of in these times, faculty supports like these may be more important than ever. I know you've served as a college president and been responsible for balancing budgets. <laughs> How do you support units uh, how do support units effectively make the case that they are mission critical? Yeah, so it's really interesting. I think that um, I would frequently get asked the question uh, about, you know, look at the growth of uh, non-faculty staffing relative to staffing, and how, you know, how can that possibly make sense? Are you are you losing sight of of your core mission and I think what we've recognized is that for students to succeed and to faculty, for faculty to succeed supporting students, there's, there's a whole scaffolding and structure of supporting services that are incredibly important. And if you don't have those, you, you lose students and faculty can't be successful in the classroom. I think we, we have to make the case, uh, and, and look at the evidence. I think if you if you go back 40 or 50 years when uh, administrative and staff positions were less, what we saw was there were just some issues that weren't addressed and uh, and students who could make it through didn't make it through because they didn't have that scaffolding around to support them. So I think evidence can help there. I do think that as a sector, we haven't been as good as we could be at, at self-evaluation and taking a look at what's important and what isn't, and uh, making sure that we're paying attention to what is the most important way to intervene to help students get from the beginning to the end and, and graduate with a degree. How should academic support units be evolving to make sure that they remain mission critical in the times ahead? Well, again, I think they need to be thinking about how they support the mission of the organization of which they are a part. And they should be talking about that with the, the whole organization as they think about the future. In some cases, it's to support the, the research mission of our research universities. In other cases, it's to support students and faculty as they uh, work to have students finish classes, accumulate those credits and graduate. So I think focusing on, on those two core missions is incredibly important. As you've moved from uh, your role 
not that many long, not that many years ago now as a college president to your, uh, your current position at Ithaca S&R and working with a, a much wider range of, of institutions. What surprised you the most? What have you, what have you learned from that breadth of experience that you've had over the last four or five years? You know, I've spent my life in, uh, most of my career in, in liberal arts colleges, which I love and I think are incredibly important and wonderful places to receive an education. Uh, and, and what's really over the last three to four years, I've been getting significantly more engaged in the broad diversity of American higher education. And I think, um, one of the things that's been really rewarding about that is that there's huge potential, I think, to uh, improve student outcomes by taking lessons from different sectors of, of higher education and applying them across the board. And uh, I think it's incredibly important to our country right now. And so I've just, it's been really energizing to be thinking about the great diversity of American higher education. What's a, what's a specific example of a practice from one type of institution that you'd want to see carried to others? Uh, so we've done some work on, I can think of two quick examples. We've done some work on uh, liberal arts education and in fact, uh, you know, demonstrated that it's not just the incredibly uh, wealthy, wonderful institution, liberal arts institutions that are being successful, but that a, a liberal education across American higher education has positive impacts on students, that it can improve their time to graduation, it can improve their uh, job prospects when they finish up with higher education. So thinking about lessons across institutions, I think, is in incredibly important. One of the things we're trying to do is figure out, are there aspects of the liberal arts education that are incredibly important that could be transferred across in a cost-effective way to help students more broadly. Um, so that's some work that we're doing right now. I did some work at, at Vassar on bringing veterans into our, our uh, institution. Uh, that was a very small step for the, for the organization, but it, it got me very interested in this issue of adult learners. Uh, we have a very large share of the population that doesn't go directly from high school on to, to university. And yet they're going to be in, they're going to be leading lives and in the labor market and having families for another 40 or 50 years and helping them find a path to improve their educational outcomes is, I think, really important. And so that's been another example. I know you've also uh, spoken and written, speaking of adult learners, on education within prison populations. Yeah, uh, I think that's an example where um, it was incredibly short-sighted when we eliminated Pell Grants for incarcerated uh, men and women. And I think there's, a, there's the hope or the expectation um, that those will be restored within hopefully a year and that then uh, colleges and universities will be able to establish a greater presence in, in prisons. And you know, this is for young men and women in many cases who did not have great K through 12 educational experiences. 
Uh, they're now in a situation where education would help them when they're released and, and most incarcerated uh, men and women will be. And so it's, it's like a win, win, win. It, it would help society. It would reduce costs of incarceration. It would improve uh, individuals' life opportunities. Uh, so I think there's huge potential for doing something positive there. Again, if you want to get educational attainment up across America, you have to go to where there are populations that have not succeeded uh, in, in going on to higher education. And so that's this stock of adult learners. This is incarcerated uh, men and women. It's veterans who, um, in many cases, enlisted in part because of the educational benefits and then aren't finding their way back uh, to productive educational experiences when they um, get out of the military. So those are all, all places to look, as well as community colleges. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned K-12 education. and Where does that fit into the national strategy that you're envisioning here? Well, I think it's um, the inequality in access to education starts with K through 12, if not, if not uh, prenatal care and, and preschool. Um, and that means that when you get to your junior or senior year in high school, students, students are at very different positions. Um, wealthier families, both through their choice of where they live, as well as making investments in independent schools or private schools uh, for K through 12, are investing hugely different amounts in their, in their children, which puts them in a very different position to compete when they go on to uh, college and university. Uh, so I do think that we need to make sure that our K through 12 systems are supplying, you know, quality primary and secondary education to, to all students. Otherwise, it's very difficult for them, for colleges and universities to, to help them catch up when the time comes. Um, but we fund, we fund K through 12 in a way that makes that extremely difficult. And so I think on probably on the state level and also the federal level, we, we need to try to equalize access a little bit more at that level. Do you think these are problems that the humanities and social sciences are perhaps uniquely poised to address? So it seems to me that if you, the humanities and social sciences are incredibly important for understanding the human condition. And if we want to improve the quality of the lives of the people that are part of our society, we, we just have to be invested in the humanities and social sciences. So, so absolutely. I also think, you know, obviously the, the hard sciences are important too. Right now, I hope those research labs are firing on all cylinders and figuring, mm -hmm. out, figuring out this COVID situation. But on the other hand, a whole bunch of the issues surrounding COVID are issues that social scientists and humanists uh, need to respond to as well. So I, I think we, we understand that the broad access to knowledge about the human condition, both the sciences, but the humanities are important to getting it right and improving the quality um, of life for our population. Do you see the, uh, the changing demographics and particularly economics of higher education as having an effect or what effect do you see it having on the disciplinary structure of the humanities and social sciences? Do you think that will change? Well, I think we're, we're, 
we're at this moment where, um, again, I, I, I keep, keep stressing, um, the importance of what's happened with rising income inequality. When you have a first generation or low income student, um, making their way to university and you ask them what's important, um, they, they will tell you that their job and their earnings afterwards are important. And the narrative out there right now is that you'd be much better, you know, going in the direction of the sciences or engineering. Uh, and not the humanities or social sciences um, for your earnings potential after after college. Uh, that's I, I think that's partly true, but not completely true. But I think it it means that the changing demographics is 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 leading to a change in what students want to major in. But that doesn't mean that during um, a bachelor's degree, students can't be exposed to uh, history and philosophy and religion and, and art history and literature and the arts more broadly, and that that would serve them well in whatever they go on to do, um, after, after university or college. Uh, but it's kind of this narrative of, you know, the humanities and social sciences, you'll be living in your parents' basement. There's no evidence of that. But I think for, uh, first generation students, they're worried about what their job prospects will be in this economy, as everybody should be because of the rising income inequality. Uh, and so I think, I think that's out there. I, it'll be curious to see. I, I think that institutions will be moving in the direction more of, um, requiring a more dispersed set of courses as you go through a bachelor's degree. And that that'll be fine. If you, if you, if you think for job reasons, you need to major, uh, in, in a certain field, as long as you're getting exposed more broadly, uh, to the full curriculum, I, I think that might be okay. There certainly also are plenty of predictions and actually evidence <laughs> that's happened of, uh, a lot of colleges and universities starting to shutter their doors because of these changes and their lack of resiliency in light of them. Where do you think we're headed? Are you, you mentioned there were about 4,500 institutions. How many do you expect will be around in a decade? I think that'll depend a lot on federal and state policy. And I, I would hope for a real commitment to investment in education. I think what, what's happened to those schools, again, I'm back to this income inequality argument, but what's happened is that, you know, it used to be the difference between a middle income family and a high income family wasn't that big. And schools were doing okay by charging middle income families a reasonable tuition that they could afford. And that was enough for them to support the costs of the institution. But now the families that those schools that are at risk of going out of business uh, those families don't have as much income, but the costs of the institution are still pretty high because they're hiring these skilled um, employees whose relative wages have gone up, and they're trying to compete in this marketplace for at least some of those full-pay kids that can afford to pay the full tuition. And that dynamic has been very negative for institutions, and I just think it would be really unfortunate uh, if we didn't recognize that and and find a way to sustain them and have them continue to be able to be important players in their local communities and 
again, if we want to get educational attainment up, it seems like just the wrong direction to be having institutions, you know, go out of business and fail. I do think they have to be more creative about ways to control costs. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure you can do it by telling your skilled faculty that they're just not going to get compensated, but you could be more creative about using technology, uh, and, and having those faculty teach a greater number of students effectively by substituting some of the things they do that could be more effectively done using technology. We're seeing that we're seeing tons of experiments with that because of COVID. We'll, we'll see what happens as we come out of out, out the other end. Yeah, that's certainly one of the salvations that, that some see to this situation is leveraging technology, but potentially leveraging um, artificial intelligence and supporting teaching, um, you know, redu increasing, increasing the number of students that an individual faculty member can can reach and can support thinking about these technology enabled team teaching opportunities where the faculty member plays uh, less of a role in some aspects even of their own courses because there's an instructional designer for that there's support for all of the various things that a faculty member could do so the faculty member perhaps can focus on the core content, their their core expertise. Do you see that as the salvation for uh, higher education at scale? I, I think that's got to be a major part of the solution. I do think that faculty are incredibly important and their interaction with students are the things that really lead to you know wonderful learning experiences. But the way we've set up higher ed, uh, I think faculty do do spend a lot of time doing things that maybe are not core to that learning experience. So, you know, I'm an economist. I've, I've taught many economics classes. Uh, my standing up in front of a class and, and lecturing on macroeconomics is probably not a very good use of my time or the student's time. Uh, when I engage with students in discussing materials that they've taken home and digested and, and brought back to the classroom and where I can engage with students on how they're thinking about the material, that's the value add. And so I think we, we will find a way to restructure what happens um, on campuses and how faculty do their jobs and engage with students. That will be the way to, to really use faculty productively. And again, I think it'll be, it'll be, um, you know, there, there are only so many ways to teach introductory micro or macro, and, and maybe we shouldn't have faculty at these 4,500 institutions deciding independently how to do this, right? So I think there are definitely economies of scale there, which would save on costs. Yeah, you, you mentioned the, the, the present uh, COVID-19 situation as perhaps uh, one of these things that's jump-starting some experimentation and an online and remote learning. It's definitely the case that, that that's, that's really forced so many segments of, you know, not just higher education, but of industry in general um, in the world to really moving ahead. Uh, it's, it's bothered me for, for many years how higher education really isn't, it really isn't built and funded and budgeted to innovate, but 
to a certain extent. It's it, it can be really difficult to for a faculty member who wants to try something different to find the funding, the time to do that. What's the solution there? Who's doing this well? Are we going to have to look to private industry? Are we going to have to look to funders, uh, outside funders who want to move the needle in this direction? How are we going to accomplish that? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty complicated. And I don't know, I would actually say that faculty can be quite innovative and care deeply about being good educators. They're less, they, they don't think about the finances of the organization very much, I don't think just kind of not part of what's on their their radar screens. Figuring out how to get faculty engaged in increasing educational attainment and recognizing that, that you know, there may be some trade-offs on, on all the bells and whistles as a way of getting more students successfully through higher education. But, I, I, you know, I, I, I think faculty can innovate and have innovated and have done so in response to COVID. You know, they they stepped up to the plate and pretty much got through the spring semester um, with about two weeks worth of warning. And uh, I, I think that that says a lot. I, I worry about, you know, higher education has historically been structured as a as being supplied by the public sector or by the private nonprofit sector and not by the private for profit sector. And I, I still worry about um, the for-profit sector. Uh, I, I believe in markets. I'm an economist. I'm I'm pretty much a neoclassical economist who thinks markets are great, but I also think sometimes they fail. And I'm not sure we can rely on them in the higher education space just because it's very hard to measure student outcomes. And that, that means that the discipline of the market uh, may not keep for-profit sectors from taking advantage of students and families. So, but that means that the not-for-profit in the public sectors needs to step up to the plate and figure out a way to innovate and, and make sure we're solving some of the problems that the sector is facing. And that's hard too, because there aren't all that many incentives to do that. What are your other worries? What, what really keeps you up at night as you ponder this space? I worry that our not solving it over the last 20 or 30 years and not having more equal access to higher education has partly resulted in some of the stresses that our society is facing right now. And that if we, if we don't solve it, uh, that those stresses will continue and will have, you know, just, just incredible, um, strife as a, as a society. Uh, so I do think that improving educational opportunities is just really important to the health of our of our democracy um, and and our communities and I hope we can I hope we can get there what's your biggest source of optimism that will accomplish that I think it's that we we are still committed even though incredibly divided as a society right now but this sense that we are all are in it together and that we need to figure it out and that uh, some of the stresses everybody recognizes what wh wherever you're sitting and whatever your perspectives that 
they're not good for the society. So I hope, I hope we can, I hope we can, um, reach some consensus that this is an area in which we should be investing and that that will help uh, address some of the issues. Well, Cappy, uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a lot of fun. It's been enlightening. And I think others will find it so as well. Okay, great. Well, it was great, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I'm your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you may listen to your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum. Momentum.